Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for making us a family. Thank you for giving us the ability to fellowship together, to encourage one another, just to spend this time with you together as well. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've done for us, for revealing to us your grace, your mercy, your love. Our prayers do go out to those in the congregation that can't be here with us this morning, that are missing out on this precious element of fellowship face-to-face, Father. We just pray that you return them to the fold in your good timing, of course. We pray also for those in this world that are still lost without hope, that they be saved before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this just a beautiful, wonderful, incredible time to rejoice in, Father. We do ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part three of the other side of grace. Let me give me just a second here. Got to squeeze out my tea bag. Okay. Um, the past two messages have been wonderfully placed. Uh, as the titles have revealed, the other side of grace. Now, if we are to trace our messages... These two special messages uh, were prompted a couple of weeks ago by a friendly reminder regarding spiritual gifts. If you recall, for whatever reason, he opened up a class a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, be grateful because it's not permanent. It may not always be. There's no guarantee, let's put it that way, of permanency. Even with a ministry like this, as wonderful as it is, And so a couple of weeks ago, this is how this whole thread started. Um, If you recall, the Spirit made mention of our own ministry. North Christian Church, as we know it. Again, stating that nothing is guaranteed. That this ministry, this pulpit, this spiritual gift that's functioning before you, it's not guaranteed permanency. He then went on to remind us that no blessing is necessarily permanent other than, you know, the guaranteed permanent ones, which are like salvation once saved and, you know, the love of God. Those are permanent ones, but all the rest, there's no necessarily guaranteed permanency. So he used the ministry as an example, but then he broadened the scope of it so that we would understand what the Spirit was trying to say. And if you know, whenever he does that, the emphasis is on gratitude. Understanding, recognizing, remembering God's grace. Creature comforts like heat and air conditioning 
in our church are just that. Creature comforts. Creature comforts. Um, they're not guaranteed. They're not even necessary. Frankly, they're nice. Are they blessings? Yeah, right? Are they absolutely necessary? No. Mm -mm. Are we going to perish if we don't have this beautiful place of worship? Nope. Are we to suggest that God has failed us if we all of a sudden, you know, say the church burns down and we've, we've got to worship in the parking lot? Nope. What shall we say then? We shall say precisely what the Spirit's been saying now for a couple of weeks up here on the board. Gratitude. We must be grateful for the blessings we have today because there's no guarantee they will remain forever. <clears throat> He's been saying that for a couple of weeks now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So after the Spirit cemented that thought in our souls, He began teaching us a maturity principle, what I'll call a maturity principle. And what I mean by that is um, if you're new to the faith or you're younger, it might be a bit of a stretch. If you've been in the faith for a while, um, it might make a lot more sense. But it is a maturity principle about grace itself. Our tendencies as human beings is to maintain the receiver perspective. This, right? God gives something to me. We call that grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. God loves me. He gives me grace. And so we tend to focus on that. We tend to focus on that. What has God done for me lately? So funny, because I heard that song on the radio on the drive-in this morning. Casey Kasem, who's dead now, but he's so popular, he's doing his American Top 40. And he's like, this one, the youngest of the Jackson crew, right? And, do, 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 do. and I'm like, it's in my notes. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. But that's how we tend to think about grace. Is that fair? It's true. Don't act all hoity-toity. Oh, no, me? I'm all about giving. <laughs> People love to receive free stuff, right? What has God done for me lately? Instead of that, though, is the more rewarding perspective. The more rewarding one. The one with the higher feedback, or the higher return on investment, let's call it that thing. The one that Jesus encouraged personally. What have I done for God lately? And that's not a religious statement. It's just an, it's an assessment. Let's call it a self-assessment. It's not a religious statement. It's what have I done for God lately? And how have I been blessed by that? So he has given us several passages of Holy Scripture <clears throat> to chew on. For example, up here on the board, Galatians 6, 9-10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, 
for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, once we mature in the faith and get out of our own way, we begin to understand the deeper aspects of our walk as believers, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him, in other words. <clears throat> Letters, you might call us, that the world can see firsthand. I mean, we do call ourselves Christians, right? As in Christ. Go to John 13.34. John 13.34. And so he spun the tables around on us. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little like... <clears throat> I think it's the um, allergy season. John 13.34 So he's turning the tables around on us uh, in a good way on the topic of grace. And he's been teaching us maturity principles. John 13.34 New commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, you see, not just that, but when you do that, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, they're going to see me in you. Not just you taking in something, but also emanating it. Not just taking or receiving, but also giving. All right? And that great litmus test, the thing that people want to see the most, the thing that God put in every human being, is this deep desire to know God and to be loved they may deny it, they may make excuses for it, they may say, I don't, I don't need God, I don't believe God, I'm going to go over here, find my love over here, I'm going to fill the void with this X, Y, and Z. But the truth be told, God made them a certain way <clears throat> that they desire these things. That there's something in them, there's a need, there's a void. Some people call it like the God void, you know, that God's supposed to fulfill this one thing that only he can fulfill. Um, nonetheless, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So remember all the work that the Spirit did in us recently regarding others being able to see the Lord through us. Remember that. It wasn't that long ago. Up here on the board, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 in the Amplified. Continually pursue peace with everyone, 
and the sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. Pursue that thing so that others can see, otherwise they won't. I want them to see my good work in you. I don't want you to just take it and then live in a cave. I don't want you to just take it and hoard it to yourself. I want this thing to happen. I want grace to flow through you. As you're sanctified, you're going to become more and more of a vessel, more capable for this very thing. Continually pursue peace with everyone in the sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace, that no root of resentment springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. In other words, we must remember always that God's purpose for us here on earth isn't just to receive His grace. That's hardly the point. But rather, as the Spirit's been pointing out as of late, our goal is to be givers of God's grace. To be givers of God's grace as it flows through us. And again, the great litmus test is love. Is love. We love because God first loved us. That's the... That's the method, that's the pattern of grace. That's the way things always flow. They come from God through us to others. God through us to others. So the great litmus test, when we ponder, am I a giver or not? How am I being sanctified? It's love. You look literally at love. Not romantic love, but the love Christ talked about. The love that Christ loved with. Now, as we read the next passage, consider your public witness, like we just talked about. Your public witness. Go to Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Consider your public witness as we read this. <clears throat> Romans twelve nine. Let love be genuine. In other words, without hypocrisy, right? We learned that not so long ago. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are we supposed to be attackers, aggressors, rabble-rousers? Are we supposed to be upsetting the peace? No. That's not what Jesus did. Right? I mean, he upset the peace in religious people, but that's a different story. He upended something completely unholy, but that's not what's in view here. We're talking about particulars even. How people see us as human beings, as Christians. What do we give back, in other words? God gave us all. What are we giving back that the world can see? Again, once we mature and get out of our own way, we begin to see things very clearly. That giving is the greater blessing, not receiving. And lo and behold, when we are giving, we are blessed all the more. You might argue, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't see it. I'm, I'm, I'm not specifically giving anyone anything. But I say, sometimes the greatest gift you can give is patience or kindness or something not necessarily measurable. Sometimes the, that's the very best you can give. Arguably, the most meaningful thing you can ever give someone, especially from a world's perspective, is your time. Especially in America. Is your time. Think about that. If you say you love someone, if you say you're a Christian, and you never give anyone your time because you're, you know, I don't know, self-absorbed. I mean, God forbid that happens in families, but that happens all the time. It's part of the problem with terrible pan parenting is you don't give your kids any of your time because you're too busy, what, trying to measure up Fulfill your lifelong dreams of what? Stuff that you're not going to take to the grave anyway? Like, what is it? So arguably, for a lot of people, the most meaningful thing you can ever give is just your time. Let me, let me amplify that by saying your attention. Because if you're standing in front of someone and going like this the whole time, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Hold on a second. That's not your time. Certainly not your attention. And people aren't stupid. 
So I would argue, think about those things. Don't condemn yourself because you're not giving someone keys to a new car or something, whatever. Right? Something that's not measurable. Give them your time. And when that person knows that it is love that motivates you, they will truly treasure it. They will treasure it. So as we mature in the faith, this love will surely grow. As Paul wrote about. Go to 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. As we mature in the faith, this love, this thing that can't help but express itself, it will grow. Paul wrote about it. He was so happy to see it in some. And so he would call it out for the sake of encouragement, as I just called it out in you. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. In other words, you're maturing. And here's the proof. You ready? Here's the proof. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's the proof. That's how you know that you're growing in the faith. That you know that your faith is maturing. That you're being more and more sanctified to God's glory. But Paul wanted to encourage these people. He said, I can see it. You're growing abundantly. You're maturing. And the proof is in the pudding. He says the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So just to add a little more clarity, these people were growing, were maturing, in that situation where they were suffering. Mm. Sounds familiar to me. How many times have I taught on that? So... They were growing. The evidence was their love, the litmus test. And by the way, the situation was one of suffering even. Persecution. One more passage for good measure on the topic of the great indicator of spiritual maturity. Possibly the easiest to understand. Go to 1 John 4.19. I already alluded to this earlier, but here we go. If you ever want to get to the other side of grace, you got to grow up. 
That's the point. You have to mature. 1 John 4.19 And again, the great litmus test is love. Here's the pattern. 1 John 4.19 Here's the pattern. We love. We love. Right? We love. We give. We express. Because why? He first loved us. In other words, our cup overflows because God fills it. God fills it, it overflows, we express ourselves. There's the pattern. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, oh, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. In other words, Paul's saying, this, uh, uh, John's saying, this is incongruent, right, with with the sphere of God. You can't say you love God and you don't love your brother. Those are mutually exclusive things. You're a liar then. But I do love God. Why do you say that? And yet you don't love your brother. Peel back a couple of layers. You love yourself. And you pretty much have hedged a bet that if you say you love God, good things will happen. Who's that about? You. It's always about you. I love God. Why? Because if, if I love God, I'm blessed. If I love God, that's the right thing. I love God because I'm selfish, because He keeps giving to me. I love people that give stuff to me. That's a selfish lover. What, if, what happens to that person when God says, I'm stopped giving to you for a while? What do they do? They walk away. How many people have been in this church that come here with an agenda? And then once things, you know, they don't, they don't receive anymore. They don't, you know, they don't perceive them, themselves as getting something anymore. What do they do? They walk away. Who was that about then? It was never about God. It was about self. Hmm. So, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there's a couple of different ways to take that. Must also, I want you to think of the sphere of God. Must in the sense that if this is true, then this must be true. But you can also look at it from a commandment perspective. You say you love God, then you must love your brother. And remember the nature of commands. It's a really interesting statement when you look at that. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, let me, let's, let's just dissect this thought for a moment. Who can force themselves to love someone else? Anybody. Can anybody here tell me honestly that you could ever force yourself to love anything? You either kind of do or you don't. 
You either have a love that is willing to be expressed or you don't. You can't force that thing to exist in you. Is that fair? Okay. I mean, you can play pretend. You can hedge bets. You can play the selfish game, which, you know, people do now all the time. I love you. They throw around the word love. It's a, it's a manipulative tool. That's all it is. That's not genuine love. That's selfish love. Real love. True love. It just can't be forced. And that's why we read earlier, let love be what? Genuine. Genuine. Stop playing games. Stop pretending. Stop telling the world you love God, but yet you hate your brother. You're a liar. We just read it. So now you're stuck, aren't you? Because now you have this thing. It's like, oh, man. It says right here, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'm kind of stuck. I, I'm, I, this is convicting, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, really convicting. Because we just all agreed, I think that we can't force ourselves to love anything or anyone. We can't force it, no matter how much we think it'll be good for us. Yet there it is in clearly stated Holy Scripture, over and over again, the command to love. Again, can you, can you really force yourself? The answer is no. The answer is no. So, this brings up a very, very critical aspect of the doctrine of God's grace. So just keep that thought. We've got to just study out a little block of theology for a moment. We'll get back to that thought. really critical aspect of the doctrine of God's grace. Because this love that is commanded is a grace gift from God. Let me say it again. This love that is commanded is a grace gift from God. As we've learned for years and years now, God never commands us to do anything without first giving us the ability to accomplish the task. He won't do that to us. He's not unfair. He's not unjust. He'll never ask us to do anything before the grace is made available. Now, as a nuance, you can say no to the grace, and then you're kind of screwed. But he's never going to ask you to do something that he first hasn't given you the grace to accomplish. And, and, and how does this happen? Of course, it's him giving grace. It's grace. And we call that the embodiment of grace. Right? The great enabler of his commands, believe it or not, is not you being religious. It's him giving you the ability. That's what we call grace. So this is the, if you want to call it, this is the quote, paradox of God's commandments. And it's something that unbelievers will never understand. 
Unbelievers will never understand this. To an unbeliever, or possibly even, to be fair, even a, a, a younger believer, and I don't mean in age, I mean in faith, possibly even a younger believer who's still learning the Bible, it just, you know, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that God would command something that you cannot do, no matter how hard you try. It doesn't make sense. It feels like, hey, that's a paradox. That's, ooh, right? It's like, ooh. Why would he command something that I can't do? That's the whole religion thing, isn't it? Say this prayer and you get to go to heaven. Oh, yeah. Right? Invite Jesus into your heart. You're in. Jesus, come into my heart. I can do that. I can be religious all day long. Right? Well, what about true salvation? Well, that's a whole other story, isn't it? Because God gives grace to the humble. He doesn't let you in just because you want to be there because you think it's a better option than hell. That's never the way to salvation, ever. That's the lie contemporary Christianity sells nowadays, and churches are filled with people that are going to probably burn in hell, because they're not really interested in Jesus. They're just hedging bets, because they're still, at their very core, selfish lovers. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. Some of them are your children. Some of you are friends. Some of you are parents. I don't know, some of your uncles. Co-workers. People that say, oh, I totally believe in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because I want to go to heaven. So, to those people, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that God would command something that you cannot do no matter how hard you try. And even for a newer believer, after they're saved, when they see a commandment, you know, X, Y, Z, it's still hard. They still exhaust themselves in trying to do things that they're commanded to do, but they're doing it from a fleshly perspective. The knee-jerk reaction of even a well-intentioned believer is to, you know, try their hardest to obey God. They hear a convicting message about obedience, and they say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey God. God's like, I can see your heart. Just saying. Seems to me you're just going through the motions. I can see your heart. So there's going to be a, a little more here. I need you to back up a few steps. I need you to stop being religious. I need you to get off the treadmill. I need you to stop filling your own cup so I can fill it. I need to be the one that gives grace to you. I need to be the enabler, not you. Critical, critical point of the doctrine of grace. 
Is it not true, if nothing else? Haven't we been pelted from this pulpit in the last year or two? Obey, obey, obey. Right? It's true. But as we've learned, and as the Spirit's bringing out again, the secret of success in this endeavor to obey is to understand God's grace. That it must be given to us by the will of God. Not your will. Thy will be done. Amen? It has to be given to you by Him. You say, I don't like that. Because I like being in control. I like calling the shots. My life. Oh, captain, my captain. My life. Well, that's why you're stuck. It's probably why you're still darn miserable. Because you can't get out of your own way. You don't actually believe what you read in the Bible. You're still self-willed. So, the secret to success in this endeavor to obey God's commands you know, like love, is to understand God's grace. Because we all agreed, you can't make yourself love anyone. You can't, you can't make yourself give to someone with wrong, you know, when you have wrong motivation. You can't make yourself give with good motivation, magically. You can play a game, and most people will probably be fooled, but the truth is, God sees your heart. Hmm. So, the ability must be given by God, by the will of God. So remember, His grace is simply an expression of His will, which, as it turns out, is always perfectly harmonious with His commands. The reason we fail to accomplish His will, for in other words, you know, the, the reason we fail to obey His commands, is because we seek to do so for fleshly purposes. Go to James 4.3. This will make a lot more sense. Go to James 4.3. Why do I fail? Why do I fail? James 4.3 Very simply stated. James 4.3 You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh, scratching record. Right? But I want to love. Why? I want to obey. Why? What good is any endeavor if you don't have the why figured out? I want to do this. Why? And like I said earlier, if you really ask someone who's doing something wrongly, it's because their motivation isn't right. Their heart's not right. 
which means de facto that God didn't give them that grace yet. They're trying to will it into existence. They're still religious. And most of you suffer from that because most of you have come from religion in one form or two forms or more. Finally, you're sitting on the truth and you're having to reject those notions in yourself to will it into existence on your own. I'm just going to do it. The Bible says, obey, I'm going to obey. But what the Bible also says is that that obedience is vapid. There's no grounding to it because your motivation is wrong. That's what we just read. You want it, you pray for it, but you do so with wrong motivation. You're doing it to spend it on your own passions. It's to satisfy your own flesh, the lust of the flesh. That's the passions. You're doing it so you can satisfy your lustly desire to be the goody two-shoes, to be the overachiever, to be that person. You know what I'm saying, because that's what you are at work. That's what you are at home. That's what you are over here. You're the goody two-shoes. And you just want to keep measuring up because mommy and daddy will be oh so disappointed. You follow? You hear me? That's religion. Oh my God! Grandma would be rolling in her grave right now. I get so excited, I pull my shirt tail out of my pants over here. Give me a second. I don't want to be distracting. Tammy can see around the corner. She won't even... She'll be all out of focus. <laughs> right? Brandon, I don't know what to say about you. Brandon's got the same angle. He's like, dude, I'm getting sick. So put your shirt in. <laughs> Literally, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. I think in the New American Standard, it says with wrong motivation, something like that. To spend it on your passions. Ugh. That is why you fail to actually love others as commanded by God. Did you hear what the Spirit just said to you? That is why you fail to actually love others as commanded by God. It's because your intention is secretly selfish in the sense that you desire to do so in a religious sense, under compulsion even, not because you are appropriately motivated for the sake of others. So dwell on that this weekend. Again, it's because your intention is secretly selfish that you fail in this command to love others. You might even be religious, which anytime you're under religion, you're compelled by guilt even, by not measuring up, by creature credit, the whole nine yards. But it certainly is not because you're properly motivated to serve 
or to obey, to love for the sake of others. So dwell on that. I'll put it on a slide form to help you up here on the board. The relationship between God's commands and grace. God's grace is an expression of His will. For example, love can't help but express itself, which is always perfectly harmonious with His commands. In other words, God will never command you to do something before He enables you to do it. So here's an analogy. Suppose a loved one is choking and someone at the table rightly says, Save them! And you're the closest one. Save them! But on the day when you were supposed to get first aid training, you were too hungover to pay attention, so you stayed in bed. Is the command to save them justified? Yeah. Yeah. Rightly, you should be able to save them. It's your fault you failed to show up for class. We might say the same thing about Bible class. Just saying. Say, well, I never heard that before. I don't know how to deal with this situation because God hasn't given me the grace yet. Really? Where have you been lately? (laughs) Really? Just saying. Did God do his job? Yeah. Well, where were you? I was too self-involved. How much does God have to do before you stop blaming Him? And that gets into the whole thread of suffering. Why are you suffering so much? The first question you have to ask is, have I received all the grace that God has attempted to give me? Or have I checked out and tried to impose my will in the situation? Just food for thought, right? Case in point, are you still at 1 John 4.21? What is it? I'll go to 1 John 4.21 then. Case in point, our previous passage, 1 John 4.21. What does that read? This is this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. They're in the same sphere. So if there's any disjointedness there, you have something to think about. Otherwise, you're a liar. To borrow from Jesus, he who has ears, let him hear. 
for the person with the spiritual apparatus to be able to actually hear the truth, not just read it in their Bible. To that person goes the blessing. Uh, hold your thumb there. Go to Matthew 13, 10. Matthew 13, verse 10. God's trying to talk to you just like He talks to unbelievers. He's trying to get the truth to them. But even after salvation, Matthew 13, 10, He tries to get the truth to you. Sanctification, right? It's not just positional, it's experiential. Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came and said to Him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Snap, right? Oh, snap. It's hard as they might even try. They don't have the apparatus to pull it off. They're deaf. They're blind. But to them it has not been given. Why? God didn't will it. But didn't we do this, and didn't we do that, and didn't we do this? I never knew you. Get away from me. Sound familiar? Same line of thinking. You didn't do any of that with good motivation. You did it for yourself. Verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has shall be taken away. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They're not equipped. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is filled that says, quote, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. If you just stop being so arrogant, self-willed. Verse 16, But bless your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Okay, go back to 1 John 4.21, where you just were. First John 4.21, In this commandment we have from Him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so what an incredible blessing it is to have this hearing and this sight as a believer. 1 Corinthians 2.14 in the Amplified up here in the board. But the natural unbelieving man does not accept the things, the teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, absurd and illogical to him, and he is incapable of understanding them because they are spiritually discerned and appreciated, and he is unqualified to judge spiritual matters. In other words, they're just dead as a doornail. 
when it comes to God's grace, even, they're kaput. Doesn't make any sense, even. It's absurd. It's illogical, and it's absurd. But we don't have that problem. We have been given faculties to overcome even that the legacy of that thinking in our souls. The, the, the shards or the remnants, the, um, the vestiges of religion. Again, what a blessing to be able to read our Bibles and hear the very voice of God so that we can understand that scripture that's in front of you. That you go, aha, I get it. It's all in the same sphere. If you, can, if you can say you have love for God but not your brother, you're a liar. Because to have one is to have the other. You must have them. So this commandment comes with, like, Evidence. Real capability. You say, I, I don't like my brother in the faith because they're a jackass. And God says, look in the mirror. My son died on a cross for you when you were much worse than a believer jackass. Where's that love? That's not my love. You're a liar. Do you understand? Yeah. You, you don't have one without the other. You say, then, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I fail to obey his commands. In particular, the one to love. Because something has fractured that in me. Something's not perfect yet. Something's not matured yet. That's normal, because nobody's 100%. But you get the point. You're somewhere on this continuum between hell and Jesus Christ in terms of love. And to be sanctified, you have to understand it first and be honest with yourself, therefore with God, about it. You have to confess it say the same thing as God about this situation that exists in you. Again, how do we understand such a verse? I mean, it's huge. Because we understand this up here in the board. The relationship between God's commands and grace. God's grace is an expression of His will. For example, love can't help but express itself which is always perfectly harmonious with his commands. In other words, God will never command you to do something before he enables you to do it. So that sets the record straight on your self-willed attempts at religious-type things and staying in this dysfunction and staying on that treadmill, treadmill and wondering why you're never delivered, wondering why you truly cannot obey that command, at least not fully. Hardly at all, maybe. Now, what's the Spirit been saying the past few messages? He's saying that once we mature, 
we begin to see things quite clearly. That's why at the beginning of class, I call this a maturity principle. The, it's the other side of grace. We all agreed. Even a, even a new believer can say, I love what God does for me. He did it for me on the cross, right? That's our starting point was receiving. I get it. But the mature side is turning all the way around saying, uh, no, oh, he wants to use me? He wants to use me? He wants to fill this cup up and use me? Yes, that's what we're getting at. Once we begin to mature, we begin to see this very clearly, which, by the way, results in having a sense of purpose when you get out of bed in the morning, that your sense of purpose is no longer to fulfill your will, which is exhausting. Amen? It's exhausting because our will includes all the fleshly stuff. I want to be the best. I want to dominate. I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to be this, I want to be that, and, and it's exhausting. Or you can abandon all that and go, Lord, how might you use me today? And you just relax. And you let him use you in humility. So, we begin to see things quite clearly. We begin to see that grace is a two-sided coin that God uses to His glory for His own purposes. When we are new or young in the faith, we tend to focus on receiving God's grace again, which is perfectly fine. That's how we start. But as we grow and mature in the faith, we realize that mode of thinking is just the beginning of understanding the sphere of God's grace and love. It's just the beginning. Do you see what I just did for you? I literally created you new. I gave you an unquenchable thirst for truth, for your desire to know me more. I gave you that. That's why even though we get down on ourselves and we beat ourselves up and say, man, it's kind of, I'm really bad. You don't give up, which is why you're here this morning, because you haven't given up. And just, I'm going to give you no extra charge. Not that I charge one cent just for the internet, for anything. You're never going to, that's never going to stop. Isn't that beautiful? If you're truly saved, you will never be able to walk away from this ever again, ever you will thirst for the truth. You will want it. If you try to walk away because you're in a mood, it will haunt you. That's how you know you're saved. If you have no regard for the truth, you have no thirst from the water that is the truth, then you're not saved. That's how you know. Because we all fall short. Amen? Amen? But you're all here because you're thirsty for the truth. And that thirst never goes away for a believer. That's how you know. That's why some people that go to church for years can walk away. They have no thirst for the truth whatsoever. What do we call them? Apostates. They were never really of us. They were never really believers. Which is why they were able to walk away. So, we might say that our introduction to God's grace does begin with receiving, and that's wonderful. 
That's all we can do at that point. Because we're enemies at that point. He's giving us salvation. So think about the gospel and salvation. All you really did was receive His grace. And for that, you are eternally grateful. Another key indicator of salvation. But then He informs you that you, or He has left you here on earth surrounded by a bunch of unbelievers, right? Especially up here in the Northeast, my goodness. It's awful up here. And then he gives you what we affectionately call the Great Commission, where his purposes now become your purposes, and his desire to save others becomes your desire, and where his love towards others becomes your love towards them. This is the sphere of God that we've been introduced to, and in many ways, we aren't even aware of it at the moment of salvation. There's just so much sanctifying work that remains after salvation. But he gives us that thirst for it. Again, salvation is just the beginning. That first receiving, that first motion to receive is just the beginning. Now, the exciting thing about being a believer is that there's so much more to learn and enjoy. Up here on the board in the Amplified, John 15, 10 through 11. If you keep my commandments and obey my teaching, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I have told you these things so that my joy and delight may be in you and that your joy may be made full and complete, and overflowing. Do you see it? I hope so. When Jesus said these words to his disciples, he was encouraging them into the sphere of God's love. He was encouraging them into that sphere of God's love. He was inviting them deeper into understanding his own heart. He was sharing himself, for he is the very fullness of grace and truth, according to John 1.14. So, he wants you to pursue this very thing, this same motion, this same sanctification. He wants you to Partake in it with vigor and tenacity and with humble aggression. Up here on the board, John 16, 24 in the Amplified, Until now you have not asked the Father for anything in my name, but now ask and keep on asking and you will receive, so that your joy may be full and complete. Don't you want what the Spirit's teaching you this morning? Ask. Ask for it in humility. Get rid of all that other stuff, all the self-will, all the religion, all your man-made plans to do this on your own, and ask them in humility. As I've taught you in the past, 
You go boldly to the throne of grace in humility. It's aggressive humility. Sounds like an oxymoron by world standards. But again, it doesn't make any sense to the world anyways. So, let's step back now. I'm going to pick a spot. Let's ponder what the Spirit's been teaching us as of late. Well, I mean, the messages, the titles have been the other side of grace. So that's our first clue. What the Spirit's been teaching us is that there's so much more to God's grace and love. Once you realize that the greater blessings come when you are a giver of it, not just a receiver. Up here on the board, Acts 20, 35b, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So reflect on this. Sometimes the easiest way to teach a topic is to present a person with the most extreme case. Just given the most pristine extreme case where certain things are undeniable. Well, to drive Jesus' point home here, let's consider the one saying it. For he is the most extreme case of giving, right? He is. So he's the extreme case. Like, he himself, personally, is the extreme case. So here's the question. The question's plural. Who was more blessed than Jesus Christ? No one. That's a cheerio. No one. Who was more giving than Jesus Christ? No one. Who was more blessed? No one. Who was more giving? No one. Then may we rightly conclude that blessing and giving are in the same sphere? In the most pristine, perfect, extreme example, namely Jesus Christ? Might we say that? That blessing and giving are in the same sphere that is Jesus Christ? He is the perfect, pristine, extreme example of these two things being intrinsic to one another. Indeed, that is the proper conclusion. This is why he said what he said. It's because he said it from personal experience and therefore with all authority on the topic. Up here on the board, what's it say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm the perfect example. So, from the authority on the topic himself, capital A, the authority, Jesus, we conclude up here on the board, being in love. You want to be in here? This is what I've been teaching you through my spirit says Jesus, there's no better place to be for you or for others than abiding in the sphere of God's love. John 15, 11 to 14. So that's where we ended, believe it or not, that's where we ended on Thursday. 
This is transcendent, powerful, freeing love. We conclude this not just through Holy Scripture, but through holy living also. Guys, got a few more minutes? Yeah? I don't see many coffee cups, so that's pretty good. Everybody seems to be doing all right. Think about this. There's a lot to say. There's a reason why he doesn't want to stop right now. Too much momentum in your soul. Too many things to lose on the threshold as you walk out. Let's capitalize. We live in a decrepit world whose God is Satan. The God of this world is Satan. And we live in it, and we're surrounded by it. We are assaulted daily by our enemies, including our own flesh. Sin is all around us at all times. But we have the God-given ability to transcend it all. We are protected because we are God's children. So I'll give you an analogy. Think about um, my two boys. And anytime I share like this, don't, 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 don't you ever think that I think I'm some kind of perfect parent because everybody else in my family would tell you that I'm not. Hey, hey, easy. Tammy's laughing. <laughs> but we did do some things right. So I think about my two boys and how many times Tammy and I would discuss what to do when we saw them making a decision that, in the end, would likely hurt them. Or minimally set them back a few steps. And we'd often say privately, let's not intervene. Let's let them make their own mistakes so they can learn from them. And we knowingly let them proceed towards their own demise. It's painful, but we did it. And afterwards, when they were dusting themselves off after their inevitable fall, we'd simply encourage them to learn from their mistakes. In other words, out of love, we subjected them to certain harm, knowing they'd suffer for it. A disclaimer, we never let them, obviously, get mortally wounded or anything. But we decidedly let them experience for themselves the dangers that exist in this world, the trappings. Um, even when their decisions were harmful to us personally, we let them proceed. Why? Because we love them. It's the same with God, you see. It's the same with God. We believers are God's children. And He purposely allowed us to remain here on earth among sinners who sin against us, who injure us, sometimes purposely. Purposefully. But 
The suffering we endure actually hardens us. It crystallizes our faith. Because we have firsthand experience that grace and love always wins. Always wins. Perfect example up here on the board, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love gives, you see, and it forgives. It gives even when someone else's sinful flesh is attacking, taking and taking and taking some more. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Children are great at it. Take, take, take. It gives love. It gives when our tanks, by all means, ought to be empty by then. It gives when human rationalism seems or deems it absurd. We believers are able to give our love when all else is in shambles. We are to forgive when our flesh would rather rain down on a person. We are able to remain selfless when everyone around us remains selfish. And here's the punchline. And this is the other side of grace. We are blessed for doing so. We are blessed for not growing weary, for doing what is good, for what is righteous, for what is obedient in God's eyes, with proper motivation. We are blessed as a result. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who for the joy set before Him endured His cross. We do as commanded. We, quote, bear our own cross. Luke 14, 27. This is our life as a believer in Christ Jesus. We have purpose. We have love. And we want to understand the other side of grace. Because... We know that abiding in the sphere of God is where we want to be always. We don't want anyone's sins, our own or others, to bump us out of our abiding, our transcendence. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time to fellowship together, to learn your word. Thank you for delivering us. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.